Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Roger Ebert's Rest His Soul was undoubtedly the most famous authority on film criticism in the world across his career. Unfortunately, that doesn't mean he was always right, or that he didn't make some out-and-out -out insane claims regarding popular films. I'm Will for What Culture, and here are 10 bonkers theories Roger Ebert had about famous movies. 10. The Golden Compass is better than Lord of the Rings and Harry Potter. According to Ebert, the Golden Compass is a darker, deeper fantasy epic than the Rings trilogy. The Chronicles of Narnia and the Potter films. It springs from the same British world of quasi-philosophical magic, but creates more complex villains and poses more intriguing questions. As a visual experience, it is superb. As an escapist fantasy, it is challenging. Now, while there are lots of fans of the His Dark Materials book series who would have loved nothing more than to see a whole trilogy of successful films, pretty much everyone who saw The Golden Compass can safely say it was no good. It wasn't even a mediocre fantasy film, in all honesty, so the suggestion that it was a deeper fantasy than Lord of the Rings and Harry Potter is insane. There were some good ideas in there, but they weren't explored nearly as well as in the books, and the very suggestion that it is in any way superb is just mental. It is certainly challenging, just not in a positive way. 9. Jurassic Park should have been a documentary. Yeah, Ebert said on Jurassic Park, quote, But consider what could have been. There is a scene very early in the film where Neil and Dern, who have studied dinosaurs all of their lives, see living ones for the first time. The creatures they see are tall, majestic leaf eaters, grazing placidly in the treetops. There is a sense of grandeur to them, and that is the sense lacking in the rest of the film which quickly turns into a standard monster movie, with screaming victims fleeing from roaring dinosaurs. So, ultimately, I guess he wanted a cold documentary, inviting us to enjoy the visual effects in a vacuum with no story. Well, that's just plain silly. Walking with dinosaurs exists, and it absolutely is not as good as Jurassic Park, although it is still pretty good. As a documentary, you lose Sir Ian Malcolm's cult appeal, you lose the complexity of John Hammond's motivations and his prickly persona leading to the park's downfall, and you use that universal, exciting spirit that will endure long after the effects have been rendered outdated and barely impressive. Forgive me, but I'd rather watch humans learn the painful lessons of reviving giant killing machines than just spy on them peacefully eating grass. 8. The Grinch was too mean. According to Webert, in this film, quote, the balance is off. There should have been more scenes establishing sympathy for the Grinch, fewer scenes establishing his meanness, more scenes to make the town people seem interesting, a jollier production design, and a brighter look overall. Yep, you heard that right. The Grinch is too mean. The actual Grinch. 
He also said that the movie is just not much fun, when the reality is, of course, it's loads of fun. But that's more than a subjective observation. The set is delightful and the colour scheme is brilliantly jolly. It's like he watched another movie. The idea that a film about the Grinch painting him in too mean a light is just lunacy. This is a film starring the most notorious meanie in cultural history, aside from maybe Ebenezer Scrooge, and the whole narrative is based around Christmas spirit and love breaking that down, despite how improbable that would initially seem. The song goes, you're a mean one, Mr. Grinch, not, you're kind of annoying sometimes, Mr. Grinch, but you're basically okay. Learn the song, Ebert. 7. Bill Murray was having a breakdown at the end of Scrooged. In short, Roger Ebert hated Scrooged, and curiously, he seems to think that Bill Murray's gruff behavior was not a performance, but rather genuine nastiness. Quote, Murray's ill humor affects the chemistry of scene after scene, introducing a kind of undertow. When he shouts at people, he doesn't add a little spin of self-mocking exaggeration, so we know to laugh. He seems to be really shouting, and the actors look as if they really feel shouted at. And when it comes to assessing that last sequence and Frank Cross's emotive redemption, Ebert genuinely seems to think that Murray was having a breakdown, saying, This sequence is the strangest in the film. The words are there, but the heart is lacking. Murray stands center stage and rants and raves about the spirit of Christmas, but it's not an inspiring speech, and certainly not a funny one. It sounds more desperate than anything else, and it continues at embarrassing length. It looks like an on-screen breakdown. And the reality is, when you look at it, he might just be right on this one. Or it might be that Murray fundamentally understood how to perform a sociopathic character who is designed to be unlikable to the point that you're supposed to root for him to tumble down to hell, only to be saved at the last moment. Murray's cross is a walking personality disorder, and of course he would overshadow his scenes. He's arrogant and egocentric, and he barely functions on a normal human spectrum. And the fact that his final moment of self-realization is flawed and weird suits him way better than anything twee. That would have been a betrayal. 6. Comic book movie is a derogatory term. Roger Ebert said a lot that was wrong about Batman Forever, mostly that it was better than Batman Returns, but also that it deserved to be considered more than just a comic book movie. The suggestion from his video review at the time was very much that the genre was a reductive term, that somehow the film couldn't be great and also a comic book movie simultaneously. Somewhat erroneously, on a more basic level, he claims Jim Carrey's Riddler looks like his character in The Mask. Sure, he's green, but they're not even close. In reality, several billion dollars and countless delighted fans disagree that the comic book movie genre is somehow inferior. And there are a bunch of complex comic book movies that are far more than empty spectacle and opportunities to fetishize the costume characters. So, suggesting that there can't be nuance or complexity under that banner in such a dismissive way was terribly wrong-headed. 5. The end of Unbreakable doesn't work. Roger Ebert felt that the greatest M. Night ending is pulled out of thin air, saying, I mentioned the ending. I was not quite sold on it. It seems a little arbitrary, as if Shyamalan plucked it out of the air and tried to make it fit. To be sure, there are hints along the way about the direction the story may take, and maybe this movie, like The Sixth Sense, will play even better the second time, once you know where it's going. Even if the ending doesn't entirely succeed, it doesn't cheat, and it comes at the end of an uncommonly absorbing movie. So he didn't hate it, sure, but on the question of arbitrariness, that's sort of the point of grand prestige twists like this. You're never supposed to see the hints until the mystery has been unveiled. That's the exact pleasure, recognizing that you've been duped despite expecting something to come all along. 
But even considering the build, Unbreakable is based on some pretty typical superhero story pillars and the traditional binary of heroism and villainy. Watching it back, you can see the genetics of Mr. Glass's origin just as much as you watch David Dunn's unfold. To suggest that it comes out of nowhere is to suggest that you haven't watched the film properly. 4. Adam Sandler's films are a cry for help on this crazy theory, Ebert may have a good point. He said that Punch Drunk Love's brilliance, and Sandler's genius in it specifically, makes you revisit every poor film he's ever made and see them in a wholly different light. They are the haunted cries for help of a truly talented man trapped in the captivity of material he is above. And honestly, there's something in it. Unfortunately, the reality of Sandler's films are that he is trapped by an audience that simply doesn't appreciate when he makes great films. His best performances outside of goofy comedies are defined by painful pathos and sentimentality. He can truly be great, but the audiences just don't react well. They make considerably less money than his sillier, less taxing roles, and there is definitely something in the idea of his aggressiveness in those films being frustration. But then again, he makes most of those films under his own production company banner, so maybe he just really isn't that good. 3. Nick Cage only chooses the best and worst scripts Ebert has a lot of affection for Nick Cage, calling him good in good movies and essential in bad ones, but he also had a theory that the actor only chooses scripts at the extreme end of the quality spectrum. He won't choose anything middling, only true brilliance or something truly awful, which perhaps explains his take on him being essential in poor movies. Honestly, this is a cool theory, but the reality is he probably just says yes to everything, to be honest. Though Cage does say he's in on the joke. It certainly looks like it, and the suggestion that he's never made a mediocre film is utterly wrong. Rage is mediocre, The Sorcerer's Apprentice is mediocre, Wind Talkers is mediocre. Sure, there are lots of great and lots of terrible films on his CV. But his is a very richly spread spectrum of quality, with more films towards the lower end than the top. 2. Home Alone 3 is better than 1 and 2 Incredibly, the great Roger Ebert thinks that Home Alone 3 is better than the two Macaulay Culkin star vehicles, which is just not correct in the slightest. Still, each to their own. He said, quote, To my astonishment, I liked the third Home Alone movie better than the first two. I'm even going so far as to recommend it, although not to grown-ups, unless they are having a very silly day. The reality is, Home Alone 3 is terrible. Like, seriously terrible. It lacks the star quality of Culkin, Pesky, and Stern, it isn't as funny as the first two, and the traps aren't as effectively entertaining. It's nowhere near the step down in quality that numbers 4 and especially 5 are, but if this is your favourite Home Alone film, there's something pretty wrong. 1. The Godfather Part 2 shouldn't have had the flashbacks. Despite awarding Francis Ford Coppola's epic sequel 4 stars, Ebert wasn't totally a fan. He believed that some scenes were pointless, and most worryingly, claimed that the De Niro starring flashback sequences were a distraction. Quote, the flashbacks give Coppola the greatest difficulty in maintaining his pace and narrative force. The story of Michael, told chronologically and without the other material, would have had really substantial impact, but Coppola prevents our complete involvement by breaking the tension. The flashbacks to New York in the early 1900s have a different, a nostalgic tone, and the audience has to keep shifting gears. Coppola was reportedly advised by friends to forget the Don Vito material and stick with Michael, and that was good advice. But in reality, seriously, no Robert De Niro? If you can get Robert De Niro in your movie, put him in. 
His part in The Godfather Part 2 remains one of the most beloved and critically acclaimed performances of his entire career. Cutting them out not only would have robbed us of that, but also would have robbed the sequel of the clever narrative parallel between Michael's rise to power in his father's past. Roger Ebert is an incredible film critic and a smart guy, but this is another hot take which is just way off the mark. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.